today and, and we want to discover the plan of redemption. Why? Because until then, from, you know, from the time where sickness came into the world, until the plan of redemption, we find out that really God healed people at credit, on credit. Number one question, what is credit? Anybody knows what credit is? When you buy something on credit, what does it mean? Any idea? You buy something and then you owe them later. Yeah. In another word, buying a, here is a credit card. If you've never seen one or heard of one or have one, a credit card means that you don't, you might not have any cash with you at the moment, but you want to buy something. Let's pretend you want to buy a TV, but you don't have. You want to buy it, have it, but you want to pay it later. So you use credit, a credit card, to buy the, the, the TV, and then it will give you 30 days to pay it later. And what happens is, who you know, when you buy it, then the merchant will send the bill to your bank, And then 30 days later, your bank will send you a piece of paper that says, okay, now you owe me that much money for the TV. That is credit. It means you buy something because you cannot pay right there. You buy something and then sometime later, you will pay it. Amen. Now you understand the concept? So in another word, until from the time sickness came into the world, Until the time of the plan of redemption, when Jesus came, what is the plan of redemption? Anybody knows? What is the plan of redemption? I'm in second year, correct? <laughs> so you're a little smarter. I, I guarantee you know what it is. You're just too shy to say it. Because if you've been in first year and went all through first year, you've heard about the plan of redemption. The plan of redemption is the legal act when Jesus climbed on the cross to pay the penalty for the sin of the whole world. It is when Jesus, if you allow me to say it this way, it's the legal right where Jesus paid for the invoice. Until then, from here, until he went on the cross, Jesus, God, and Jesus healed people on credit. And the day, the plan of redemption When he paid with his blood, that's the day he paid the invoice. He paid the price. And until then, he healed that credit. But the plan of redemption, when he hung on the cross, he became sin. He became a curse. By his tree, he received stripes on his back. At that moment, at that place, at that moment, he paid the invoice for your healing for your sins, for everything, for your prosperity, for everything that God has bought for you. He paid the price right there. Amen. Now, you notice that I said, where is my glasses? On my head. Isn't that amazing? You notice that I said that it was the legal act, the legal act that when Jesus paid for sin, 
sickness, poverty, all the works of the devil. Legal act. Why, why do I call it a legal act? Because God is a just God. And anything that God does, he has to do it legally. Because you see, yes, God is sovereign, right? But God has put his sovereignty into his word and into the laws that is put in place. You see, God has put things into place from the very beginning. And God is not going to break his own laws. God is not going to break his word and do things. Oh, he's going to do it differently. No, God has to abide because God is just. God will abide by his own laws. And so when I say that it's the legal act, it means that God had to do it the legal way. Why? Because you remember at the beginning when God created Adam, he gave him all authority. Here are some references in Genesis 1, verse 26, 28. Let us make man in our image and let us give him dominion over all the works of our hands. Amen. And so we find out that man, Adam, was given all authority. The Bible also said in Psalm chapter 8, verse 4 and 8, it says, What is man that you are so mindful of him? Amen. You have made him a little lower of Elohim, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And you have put all things under his feet and gave him dominion over all things. You see, at the law, what God has put in place legally is that God created the earth, but then he gave it to man. This is found in Psalm 115, verse 16. It says, the heavens, yes, the heaven are the Lord's, but the earth, he has given it to the sons of man. So what did God do legally is that God had authority in heaven, but then he delegated his authority on earth to man. So it is man who, has author who had authority on earth. Amen. But then you, re you remember what Adam did. He did not exercise that authority. And by, by being passive and not exercising that authority, what did he do? He gave permission to the devil... And by doing so, he went over and gave him permission and gave him that authority. In Luke chapter 4, in Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus was being tempted, amen, the devil said, look, those kingdoms and all that authority, I will give it to you if you worship me, for these have been delivered unto me. When was it delivered to him and who delivered it to him? Adam. At the right there at the beginning, Genesis chapter 3. Amen. And so we find out that men had authority. The devil took that authority. Amen. And so in order for God to take back that authority, he had to do it the legal way. Number one, he had to be a man. Because at the origin, man was the one who had authority. So that it, it had to be a man that come, men lost it, it was men that had to regain it. That's, that, that, amen. But the problem, we have a big problem. What is it? Man is sinful. And therefore, in his sinfulness, man 
is under the dominion of Satan. And because he is under the dominion of Satan, he cannot overcome him. He cannot take that authority back. So what did God have to do? You see, in order to take that authority man, God had to become a man, but it had to be a man without sin, and God was the only one that could qualify. That's the reason why that God found a virgin, put the seed of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the woman, and it produced a man who was 100% man, the son of man, and 100% God, the son of God. That's why in the gospel you find that sometimes it talks about the son of man, the son of God. It's talking either of his divinity or his humanity. You see, God had to, to do it the legal way. That's why, that's why he did what he did. He had to become a man, but it was a sinless man who now was no, not subject to the devil. And because he was a man, he had a right to be on earth. And because he was without sin, he was not overcome, but he overcame the devil. Yes. Hallelujah, you see. And, and then finally, he was able to regain that authority and, and, and overcome the devil once and for all. How? By going on the cross and paying for the sin. S-I-N. Notice, I didn't say sins. I said for the sin which means all the individual sins and the sin nature of the whole humanity, past, present, and future. Hallelujah. And we find that that's the moment when Jesus hung on the cross and poured his blood. You know, it was one life for a life. With that, the shedding of blood, there is no remission, removing of sin. And that's at that moment when he shed his blood. It's the shedding of the blood that paid the price, that paid the invoice. And this is found. Can you, do you know where the plan of redemption is found? Isaiah, I'll give you a hint. Isaiah 53. Well done. Yes. In Isaiah 53, verse 4 and 5. Let's look at it together. He says, surely... He has borne our grief, and he has carried our sorrows. Yet we did not esteem him. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our sins. The punishment for our peace was put upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. You know, I always have people, when I refer, you know, when I make reference to Isaiah 53, you will have those that say, Audrey, it's only talking here about salvation. It's talking about, you know, spiritual healing. That's what people think. But you see, it's amazing because when you look here at the, ver the words, when he says he carried our grief, and he carried our sorrows in the Hebrew. Listen to those words. The word grief in Hebrew, it's the word choli. Choli. And this is what it means. Anxiety, disease, sickness. And then when he says carried our sorrows, 
It's the word makob, makob, makoba. It's a long word. And here again, it means affliction and pain, physical pain, not just spiritual and emotional pain. Amen. And actually, if there is any doubt about this, then you know the Bible will interpret itself. Because if you go to Matthew chapter 8, if you go to Matthew chapter 8, Jesus actually quotes this very verse of Isaiah 53. Amen. And what did Jesus say? He gave a, a, a clear interpretation of that verse according to what it really means. Amen. And in Matthew chapter 8, verse 16 and 17, it says, When evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word. I like that. Notice he didn't wrestle with the, with the demons. He didn't spend five hours wrestling with the demons. I like that. With a word. And he healed all who were sick. That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. Saying he himself took our infirmities and he bore our sicknesses. So you see Choli and Makoba means sickness and disease. We see that on the cross the plan of redemption. Yes it took care of all the sin, your sin and the sin of all humanity. But at the same time, at the same place, it took care of all the disease, all the sicknesses of the whole world at the one place. And he even did even more. You see, that plan of redemption, it's a whole around work uh, of God. It's at that moment where there is an instant divine exchange where Jesus took our place. There was a substitution where he took our place so we can take uh, his place. And at that moment, God took care of our sin, of our sickness, of our poverty, and every other work of the devil. Amen? That's, I like that. I don't know about you. Jesus became sin so that you can be made righteous. Thank you. He became sickness so that you can be healed. He became poor so that you might be made rich. You see, if you look in the Bible, that always has been the will of God for his children at the beginning. And that's why you look, here are some verses to confirm that. The epistle of the third John, verse 2. The apostle John says, My beloved, I wish above all things that you may prosper in every area of your life. And be in good health just as your soul prospers. And let me, can I add a little something to this? You see, when your soul starts prospering, you know what it will? It will affect every area of your life. You will prosper in your finances, in your body, in your emotions, in your relationship, in every, every area. Amen? And listen to this one in Psalm 103. Verse 1 through 3, it's the David. And now here it's amazing to me because David was a man under the law. But yet he had a revelation about grace like no other. And he knew the heart of God. Even though he was under the law and he could have perceived God as a judge, he always saw God as being good, as God being a father. 
God who was not against him but for him. Even when David had to be judged, amen, even when he had to be judged and God says, you are under the law, David, I'm going to have to judge you, but this is what I'll do. I'll give you three different options. Option number one, seven years of famine. Option number two, I believe it was being defeated by the enemy seven days. Or option number, you know, three, a plague for, you know, I think it was three days. And David, what did he say? He said, God, I would rather fall into your hand than in the hand of man. Because David had an understanding of God and he, he was called a man after own, own heart. Amen. And David, that's what he said in Psalm 103. A man under the law, he says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. For he forgives all your sins. He heals all your disease. He redeems your life from destruction. And he fills your mouth with good things. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Amen. That was what David said. Hallelujah. And so we see that all through, uh, uh, the, even the Old Testament, all through we see that it's always been the will of God for men to be not only spiritually sound, but physically, emotionally, financially, every area of his life. Amen. So healing has always been the will of God. Amen. And then finally, go with me. I'd like us to look at it together in 1 Peter 2.24. Of course, you know probably this verse, 1 Peter 2.24. But I want to point something to your attention. Remember what I said, from here to here, God healed people all the time, but he did it on credit. He hadn't paid the, the price. He just did it because he was good, because he was full of grace and mercy. He healed people. But on the plan of redemption, the day where Jesus went on the cross, once for all, he paid the price. There is a legal document in heaven that says, pay for. Hallelujah. Which means that now it gives you the legal, legal right when the devil knocks at your door and said, here, uh, cancer, you deserve it. You got to pay for it. You remember you were a bad boy. So you better, you got, you, did, you got to pay for it. At that moment, you have a legal right because you have a legal document. Isaiah 53, 1 Peter 2.24. It is a document that says pay for. It's like you going to the store, amen, and you buy a TV and you pay for it. And then you said, I can't pick it up right now, but I'll come next in a few days. I'll send somebody. And then a few days later, you send your brother with his little truck. And so he goes to pick up the TV. And what if the, 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 the merchant said, oh, you owe me 10,000 bur? And you said, uh-uh. At that moment, you've got to pull out the invoice, the little legal document that says, look, it's already been paid for. You see, in the court of heaven, legally, in the spirit world, you've got a legal document. Isaiah 53, 1 Peter 2.24. And look at what 1 Peter 2.24 says. By the stripes, he himself bore our sins on the cross. In his own body on the tree, 
that we having died to sins might live for righteousness. By whose stripes you were healed. You see, Peter, even though he was present at the cross, he saw him hanging on the tree. But when he wrote this, epi this epistle, a few years later, what did he do? He looked back in the past. He looked back on that day because from now on until today, 2,000 years, we've got to look back and we've got to remember the day where the invoice was paid, where the price was paid. And like Peter, he says, we were past tense. The invoice has already been paid. And when Satan says, here it is, you've got to be sick, cancer, you said, sorry, no, look, I've got the invoice right here. <laughs> paid for. <laughs> paid for. And legally, then he has no right unless you don't know about it. And that is the problem. Most people don't know about it. They are praying. They are begging God, crying, uh, begging, and asking God to do something. Because they don't know. They're asking God, please pay for my, for my sickness, would you? Please pay for my invoice right now. I'm trying to be charged with a sickness. Please, would you pay for it? Please, would you do something? When the, what they don't know in, in their pocket, they have the legal invoice that said it's already paid. God is not. That's why God is seated. He is seated. Why? Because he said it is finished. It is paid for. But most Christians don't know that they have in their pocket a legal document that said your sickness is already paid for. The devil is just trying to charge you. For it twice to make you pay for it again but you see if you know about it hallelujah Amen. glory to God Amen. ain't that good yes. that is good then number nine let's move a little along just to see in the rest of the scriptures there are many in the New Testament now proof that show us yet it is the will of God for us to be not only healed but to be healthy. The number nine proof is the fatherhood of God. What do I mean by that? The fatherhood of God. Second Corinthians 6, 18. Second Corinthians 6, 18. God declared that as part of the new covenant, he was going to be a father to us. And of course, the picture that we have of a father, you know, every one of us in this room have a different picture of what a father is. And why? Because every one of us in this room have had a different experience of a father. Whether your father was good or he was, you know, abusing you, beating you up with his, with his words or his hands, whether he was maybe a workaholic, always worked, never was home, or maybe, you know, he was a good father, or maybe, I don't know, you fill in the blank, but whichever picture you have of a father will be a reflection of the heavenly father. And so for some of us, we have to kind of renew our mind and try to imagine God as being not only a good father, but the perfect father. Because God said, I want to be a father to you. And so what kind of father is God? In Luke 11, 11, Jesus tried to, you know, that's one of the reasons why he came. He said, I come to show you the father. Because you see, until then, through the law, 
the people, Jewish people did not know had lost who God is. They no longer saw him like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as a good God. They now saw him as a judge who was quick to punish, quick to, to, to judge and condemn, who was like a, you know, I call it an excessive, compulsive perfectionist. You know anybody like this? You go to the house, man, you better walk straight. Because don't put the glass here, it's going to put a stain. Don't sit there, it's going to do this. You know, you get so... Oh, I know people like that. But you know, what happened? You were around them, you're like walking on eggshells. You're like, you don't feel comfortable. And that's how they saw God. They saw God as being, you know, ready, quick, and, and whose will and desire, because after all, he was so holy, his desire was to immediately condemn you if something was wrong. That's how they said. They forgot who God was as a good father. And so Jesus said, I've come to show you the father. I've come to show you the heart of God. And Luke 11, 11. Luke 11, 11. He says, if a son asks to a father for bread, ask for, for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? No. You know the answer. If he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then being evil, or you could say being carnal, natural, know how to give good things to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? God, Jesus is saying here, if you, as a natural father, if your son asks you for bread, you will give your son bread. You will give him bread. But you know what I like? And the scriptures actually show us, the scripture actually show us that healing Jesus said healing is the bread, children's bread. Have you read that? He says healing is the children's bread in Matthew 15, verse 26 through 28. Jesus called healing the children's bread. You know what that means? Then in, 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 Jesus said if a son asks for bread, asks for healing, will God refuse him? Will the father say, no, I'm going to give you something else instead? No, by conclusion, you can say that if a son asks for the heavenly father for bread or for healing, then the father is going to give it to him. Amen? Hallelujah. In Acts, we also know the Bible says that God gives good things, right? We just read the father gives good things. How much more, if you know how to give good things to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give good things to your children? But you know what the Bible also, also tells us? That healing is a good thing. Yes. Acts 10.38. Had Jesus anointed with the Holy Spirit and power, went around doing good. And doing what? healing all who are oppressed of the devil. By conclusion, you can say healing is good. So if you, evil father, know how to give good things to your children, how much more will your heavenly father good you, give you good things? And healing is the good things. Healing is the bread of the children. 
So you see, your heavenly Father wants 100% give you healing because it's good, because it's your, it belongs to you. It's your bread. Hallelujah. Amen. Glory to God. And in Exodus 23, and here it is, I like it. You know in Matthew 6 when Jesus says the Lord's Prayer, he said, Our Father who which are in heaven, hallowed be your name. You know, your will be done, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. You know what that means? That healing that be something we have a right to partake of every day. Because healing is a children's bread. Yes. Give us today our daily bread. Keep us healthy. That's what Exodus 23 says. God will bless your bread and your water and take sickness from you. There will be no miscarriage among you. If that was in the Old Testament, how much more will it be today? Yes. They did it. God did it on credit. During the, the, in Exodus, today's paid the price. How much more do we have a right? And know that God, not only will he take sickness out of our midst, he has taken sickness out of our midst. Amen? Hallelujah. Number 10. Jesus, the good shepherd. Jesus, the good shepherd. How many of you know Psalm 23? Amen. But let's turn to it. Let's go to it if you don't mind. Because I want to show you something pretty cool. Um, how many of you know that Psalm 22 is where King David prophesied of the crucifixion of Jesus also? It's in Psalm 22 that it is revealed, it was revealed that Jesus, the Messiah, would be crucified. He said his hands and his feet would be pierced. Until then, crucifixion had never existed. So David saw ahead that the death would be by crucifixion. And then it's there also in Psalm 22 where the King David prophesied that Jesus is closed. They would play, they would, uh, they would bet, they would throw dice for his clothes. That's what happened at the cross, isn't it? Yes. So Psalm 22 is a prophecy of Jesus on the cross, right? Yes. In another word, you could say Psalm 22 is the plan of redemption also. And what happened after Psalm 22? What song come after Psalm 22? 23, it's not a trick question. <laughs> Psalm 23 comes after Psalm 22. And you know what Psalm 23 really is? It's the, a new covenant in Christ. Psalm 23 shows what belongs to you now in Christ, a covenant of peace. And look at what Jesus, by what he did in Psalm 22, in Psalm 23, in the fulfillment and the promise made to you. So I want you to read Psalm 23, knowing that it's a promise, not just in the Old Testament, but it's now, it's a fulfillment of the promise made to you. 
after what Jesus did on the cross, Psalm 23 says now, because Jesus went on the cross, now the Lord is your shepherd. You shall not want, not even healing. You shall not want any good thing. Because Jesus went to the cross, now it's a covenant of rest. He makes you to lie down. Come unto me, all you are heavy, laden, and weary, for I will give you rest. I will make you to lie down by green pastures. Hallelujah. I will lead you beside the still waters. I will restore your soul. And he, God is promised to lead you in the path of righteousness. That's what now the good shepherd, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit have promised to do in your life now, today. But notice he says, but yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Do you see a difference here? God leads you by the green pastures. He brings you and leads you by the still waters. He guides you by the path of, the path of righteousness. God does that. But is it God guiding you in the valley of the shadow of death? No. You see, now though I walk, God leads you in the path of righteousness, but we end up walking and getting into the valley of the shadow of death. Why? Because sometimes our own mistakes. We make wrong choices. We take wrong turns. Sometimes also because we have a testimony for Jesus Christ. And the devil doesn't like it. Sometimes because we take a stand for faith on the word. And the Bible says in Mark 4 that the devil comes because of the word. To attack the word. To attack your faith. So, yes, sometimes we will end up in the valley of the shadow of death. Yes, sometimes we will experience some trials and tribulation, but it's not God bringing you there. Amen. Amen. But the good news is even though you might be in the valley of the shadow of death, God is with you. Amen. And he promised to take you through. Yes. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. I know some people don't like that. Because we said God takes you through the mountain, then he'll take you through the valley. That's not what the, the covenant of promise is to, to us. God didn't say he takes you to the mountain and then he'll take you to the valley. No, you end up in the valley, but even there God will not let go of you. He'll not only walk through, he'll take you out to bring you back on the mountain. From glory to glory, from faith to faith, from Amen. victory to victory. Thanks be to God who always gives us the victory in Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks be to God who always leads us into triumph. That's where God wants to lead you, in triumph, not in the valley of the shadow of death. Keep your stones under the chair. Don't be stoning me right now. <laughs> I see some, of the, some people have a hard time accepting that. But it's the truth. Amen. God is the good shepherd. Amen. You shall not want. You shall not even want healing. And let's see. You know in the Bible in Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 34. In Ezekiel 34 we find here that God was addressing the shepherds of Israel. Now what is a, in our everyday language for us what is a shepherd? 
what would be our spiritual shepherds? Pastors. So we see there in Ezekiel, or you could say spiritual leaders. Spiritual leaders. And we find in Ezekiel chapter 34, Ezekiel 34, it's one of the major prophets. Jesus here, or God, excuse me, is addressing the shepherds of Israel or the spiritual leaders of Israel. And he's really rebuking them. And why is he rebuking them? You see in verse 2, he says, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God to the shepherds, Woe to the shepherds of Israel. When God says woe, it means it's serious business. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? And look in verse 4. Why is God rebuking the shepherds or the spiritual leaders of Israel? The weak you have not strengthened, nor have you healed those who were sick, nor bound up the broken, nor brought back what was driven away, nor sought what was lost, but with force and cruelty you have ruled them. Now God himself is rebuking the shepherds of Israel, the religious leaders, because they did not fulfill their responsibility. And we see that the responsibility of a good shepherd is to strengthen the weak, to heal the sick, to feed the, the, the flock, to find those who are lost, to strengthen those who... Amen. That is the responsibility of a shepherd. Therefore, if God is called the good shepherd, what do you think his responsibility is? Do you think he's going to reprimand and rebuke the religious <coughs> leaders because they didn't heal the sick and then not want to do it and <coughs> fail to his responsibility? No. For people who said God today doesn't want to heal everybody, then that it's calling him a bad shepherd. There would be a contradiction there. Because you know what God said, if you look a couple of verses further down, a few verses in verse 14, in verse 14 through 16, God says, now I will be a shepherd. I myself will, will be a, good, a shepherd. And verse 14 says, I will feed them in good pastures. They fold shall be on the high mountain of Israel, not in the valley. They shall lie down in a good fold and feed in rich pastures on the mountain of Israel. Doesn't that sound like Psalm 23 a little bit, doesn't it? I will feed my flock, verse 15. I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. Verse 16, I will seek what was lost and bring back what was driven away. Bind up the broken, strengthen what was sick. But I will destroy the fat and the strong. And the word strengthen here is the Hebrew word shazak. It's the Hebrew word shazak. And Shazak actually means to heal, to establish, to encourage, to repair, to help, to fortify, and to strengthen. 
That's what Shazak actually means. So really, when he says, I myself, he said, I myself will be a good shepherd. I will, verse 16, I will strengthen, heal, fortify, help, encourage. I will establish those who are sick. That is the, the good shepherd. He, here, right here, really, it was a prophecy, again, of the new covenant. Jesus, our good shepherd. That was a prophecy, also Psalm 23, the same thing. What Jesus did for us. That's why Jesus, you see, he, he addressed people who were under the law. He addressed people who were under those bad shepherds, those bad religious leaders. And he, he, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are heavy laden. And I will give you rest, for my burden is light and my yoke is easy. That's what Jesus was saying. Amen. Because Jesus knew that the religious system of the day were not healing the sick, but were putting heavy bondage of people. Amen. Hallelujah. Number 11. We need more space, don't we? The bride of Christ. The bride of Christ. I would like you, ladies and gentlemen, to look at your neighbor and say, you are the bride of Christ. I'm going to, I guess, if that's okay, I'm going to remove a little here. And I will start now from here. I can see you have a difficulty. So let me do it again. 11, the bride of Christ. Hallelujah. We all are part of the bride of Christ. So we have to ask ourselves the question, we, see, we know that marriage is really a type of Christ and the church. Isn't that true? Yes. Marriage is the type of Christ in the church. Ephesians 5.25. Let's read that scripture, that scripture really quick. Ephesians 5.25. Husband, love your wives. Any husbands here? Amen. Husband, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Amen. Now we know in Genesis 2.18, you remember when God created, fashioned really, he made the man and then he fashioned the woman. <laughs> man, I hate to tell you, but us ladies, we are a little more fashioned than you are. God took a little more time to make us. <laughs> but then this is what he said. He said, it's not good for man to be alone. You need some help, guys. Apparently, you needed a lot of help. And God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make for him a helper comparable to him. So woman was called for man to help him. But question if a wife is sick in bed, can she really help her husband? Can she really be a complete blessing to him if she's laying in bed sick 
all the time. I guarantee you not. Amen. And so we, we've got to, to ask ourselves, if the woman is called to help the husband, therefore, and be a blessing to help him, therefore the church, who is the bride of Christ, is called to bless him, called to help him to fulfill the will of the Father here on earth. But how can the bride of Christ fulfill her call and fulfill her mission if she's sick in bed? How can you go and be a, a helper if you are sick? And I'm talking about the bride of Christ. Amen? And do you think that the husband would take pleasure to see his wife weak and sick and suffering? No, and neither will Christ as the husband would take pleasure to see his bride weak and sick and struggling with pain and sickness. But we see an example here of how did Jesus deal with a woman who was sick. You remember it's found in Matthew chapter 8, verse 14 and 15. Matthew 8, 14 and 15, we have... Peter, mother-in-law. Amen. And Jesus went to Peter's house. But the Peter mother-in-law couldn't do anything. Why? Because she was sick, laying in bed. So what did Jesus say and what did he do? Woman, I don't care if you're sick. Just get up and serve. <laughs> Is this what Jesus said? No. He went over her and healed her. He healed her. And then she was healed. And then she was able to get up. And serve them. And so we see that Jesus here never asked anybody to serve but endure sickness. So you can glorify God. So you can display the grace of God. I am so weak and I'm sick. But no, here I endure. No, Jesus never asked her to endure the sickness and help them and serve them. No, he, he, he healed her first and then she was able to serve them. And then we see also in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 28 and 30. I love that. Now remember, Christ is our husband. We are the bride. You make a pretty good-looking bride, by the way. I know that might sound a little odd for you, <laughs> gentlemen. But you are part of the bride. And verse 28 says, So husbands ought to love their own wives at their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one has ever hated his own flesh. But listen, he nourishes it and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. The Lord cherishes his bride, nourishes his bride, heals his bride, takes care of his bride. Come on. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bone. Hallelujah. And, and so we find that just as a husband, husband, listen to it. If you want your wife to treat you good, love her. Treat her good. And I guarantee you, she will get up, serve you, help you, do everything she can to be a blessing to you. Amen. And so that's what Christ did for us. He blessed us. He loves us. We love him because he loved us first. Yes. He heals us. 
And what I do, it motivates us. Now we get up, we want to be a blessing to him. We want to serve him, help him, bless him, do everything to be a blessing to him. Amen. Christ has never asked us to hold, to take anger, uh, 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 sickness, to keep sickness and endure it and serve him no matter what. He never asked that of us. No, he loves us. He cherishes us. He nourishes us. He heals us. He takes good care of us. He loves us. Amen. We can get up and be a blessing to him and to fulfill the will of the Father on earth. Amen. Hallelujah. Number 12. Number 12. We just saw there in verse 30, we are the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ. Okay, I have a question again for you. I like questions, don't I? Don't I? Um, here are a couple of scripture reference. We just saw Ephesians chapter 5, verse 30. We are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. 1 Corinthians 12, 27. 1 Corinthians 12, 12, 27. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. Ephesians 1, 22. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. So we just saw some verses here, and we know we are the body of Christ. Now question, when Jesus walked on earth 2,000 years ago, he was the head and the body, correct? He was the body of Christ, walking physically on earth. Was the body of Christ 2,000 years ago, was it sick? Was Jesus ever sick? He couldn't, why? Because he was not subject to sin. So he could not, he was not subject to corruption. So Jesus was never, never, never sick. Now, if the body of Christ was healthy 2,000 years ago, do you think that God is going to change his mind? And do you think Christ is going to want to have a sick body here on earth? Now, he, now he's at the right hand of the Father, but he left his body here. And do you, want, do you think one second that he wants a sick body? You see, if the body of Christ was healthy 2,000 years ago, God has not changed his mind. He wants his body healthy right here on earth. Why? Here again, to do a good job. Amen. And li listen to this. You see, to admit or to, to think or presume that God himself, Christ himself, would want his body sick or better yet, we want to inflict pain and sickness on his body. You know what that is? If you look in the Bible, only the people who were demon-possessed or the sorcerers would do such a thing. You remember the guy Legion? The guy who was demon-possessed, Legion, what did he do? Because he was demon-possessed, he would cut himself and inflict suffering to himself with a stone. Or you remember 
the priest of Baal in the Old Testament, when they tried to worship to God, what did they do? They would cut themselves. Only people, only the devil would do that to the people he possessed. And God who possesses us, we are Christ possessed. Christ would not inflict pain to us. That would, that would make us like the priest of Baal. That would make us like the demon-possessed people. Do you see where I'm going? Do you understand what I'm saying here? Amen. Christ, we are his body, and Christ is never going to inflict pain to his own body. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Amen. Hallelujah. That's called self-mutilation. That's the word I was looking for. Self-mutilation. That's what the legion did. Because he was demon-possessed. Possessed of the devil. He would cut himself. Self, he would much mutilate himself. But we are God-possessed. And God will never want to mutilate us and inflict pain to, to ourselves. Amen? I hope you understand what I'm trying to, to talk about here. Number 13. We are... How much time do I have? Oh, good. The priest... We are the priest of God. Hallelujah. First Peter 2 9. First Peter 2 9. What does it say? You are a holy nation, a royal priesthood. In Revelation 1 6, it said that God made you kings and priest unto himself. So every one of us tonight, we are now under this new covenant. We don't need a mediator because now Christ is our only mediator and now we are high priest unto God. Look at each other and say, you're a priest. You are a priest. It means as a priest now, you can go face to face to God. You don't have, you, you can go directly to God to offer sacrifices. And what are the sacrifices that we are to offer according to the New Testament? Our body is a living sacrifice. Our life, our praise is a living is a sacrifice. Our confession is another sacrifice. These are the sacrifices as priests that we are to offer. But I want to look in the Old Testament. What was the prerequisite or the regulation for a priest? You, you'll understand what I'm talking about. I see some of your faces going. <laughs> Under the Old Covenant, there was very strict rules about who could be a priest and who could go into the temple, and who could appear into the Holy of Holies. There were very strict rules. But let's look at it in Leviticus 21. Leviticus 21 is the third book of the Bible. Leviticus 21, verse 16. 
Third book of the Bible, if you're turning there. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron, saying, No man, listen to this, No man of your descendants in succeeding generation. Now, who was Aaron? What was his role or his calling? He was priest, correct? His sons, Eliezer and Heliu and Abiram, were also priests in his lineage. And he says, speak to Aaron, no man of your descendants in generation who has any defect may approach to offer the bread of his God. And when he was talking about defect there, there is a long list that you can read in Leviticus 21. You can find it's all talking about physical defect. A mole on the body, or if it's hunchback, or if it's got bad eye, bad eyesight, or if it's got broken thing, or whatever. Any kind of physical infirmity would disqualify somebody from being a priest. Now, I thank God for his grace. Amen. Uh, I thank God for his grace because now under this new covenant, even though we might have a challenge with a physical problem, we're not disqualified. Hallelujah. But we can see here that there would be a contradiction if we said that a priest was not allowed to be sick under the old covenant and that today under the new covenant, God all of a sudden wants his priest to suffer sickness. That it's pleasing to God for his priest to have. There would be a contradiction. I want you to see that God's will doesn't change. Why? Because he doesn't. He hates sickness. That's his enemy, just like sin. And just like a priest, if he had any sin, had to, you know, have it under the blood, and sin was not allowed in the priest. When he came in God's presence, at the same time, sickness was not permitted in the priest in order to come in God's presence. So you see here that there is a continuity. There is the same will. God has not changed his will. That shows us that if he did not want sickness in his priesthood, in the Old Testament, God does not want his priest to be sick. Amen. Then, number 14. We are the temple of God. We are the temple of God. 1 Corinthians 3.16 1 Corinthians 3.16 says Know ye not that the Spirit of God lives in you and you are the temple of God, of the Holy Spirit. Look at your neighbor and says, You're a temple. You are a good looking temple. Why? Because the Spirit, Christ, lives in you, the Spirit of God. You see, as in the Old Testament, there was first the tabernacle where that they were carrying around, and then they built, Solomon built a temple, correct? Yes. 
And then that's where the presence of God was, in the Holy of Holies, or the holiest place, behind the veil. There was the mercy seat with the cherubim, and there dwell the presence of God. And then, you, of course, you remember that when Jesus hung on the cross and, and shed his blood, it says, it is finished. And at that moment, the veil ripped from top to bottom, and the presence of God left. And where did it go? In us. The presence of God is not in you. No more in a building, but in you. Now, let's then look what were the regulations for the temple in the Old Testament. The regulation, if you were in Leviticus 21, then stay there. In verse 23. Leviticus 21, verse 23. He says, Only he shall not go near the veil or approach the altar because he has a defect. He's talking about the priest. Lest he profane my sanctuary. For I, the Lord, sanctify. What is it, does it mean? It means that if a priest, if somebody went into the temple with a sickness, carrying a sickness, it would defile the temple. So if in, under the old covenant, sickness profaned and defiled the temple, so what do you think it's happening today? We are the temple of the Holy Ghost. If God saw sickness in the old covenant, in the old temple, as being profaning and, and uh, corrupting the temple, then why would today sickness be a good thing in this temple? You see, God sees it the same way. It's the same thing. In the old covenant, sickness profaned and, and corrupted the temple, and it's the same thing today. You see, sickness corrupts and defiles your temple. Now thank God for his grace. But the truth remains the same. That's how God sees it. Sin defiled this temple. Sickness defiles this temple. And so what do we need to do? In order to glorify God, the truth is we want to keep this temple free from sin and as far away from sickness as possible. That's what our role is because this body was given to us to take care of. We are a steward of this body, of this temple. Now you're a priest. Like in the old covenant, the priests were stewards of the temple. Now you are a priest and a steward of this temple. So now your role, what it is, just like the priest, his function was to keep any sin and any sickness away from the temple. He had to be careful and really pay attention that no one would go in there and bring any kind of sickness. Now that's our, our role also as high priest. Kings and priests unto our God, what we want to do, we want to keep sickness away from this. We want to keep sin away from this because this is our temple. Hallelujah. 1 Corinthians 3.17 says, If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him, but I thank God for his grace. You see, the truth is we might not always attain to the goal, which means walking in perfect health, 
24 hours a day, seven days a week. But our goal is to keep it away. Our goal is if something tries to get in, we want to get it out and not keep it and cherish it and nurture it like Christians do. When sickness comes, all of a sudden, you know because your flesh likes it. Because people will take care of you. They'll, they'll bring you hot soup in bed. They will wipe your bra. They will ask you, what can I do for you? Don't make any problem. And people, your flesh like that. And so what, now, do you understand what I'm talking about? Have you ever seen people who are sick? And all of a sudden, what happens? They get people's attention. They get people's attention. All of a sudden, people are want to help them. People are asking them, how are you doing? They want to bring you hot soup in bed. And they want to, you know, don't, don't hurt yourself. Let me help you. And then all of a sudden, oh, I like that. I like that attention. So, oh, I'm feeling not good. So there are, you, did, you, did you notice why there were times where Jesus asked people, do you want to be made well? Strange question, isn't it? I'm taking a little side journey here. I believe it's the Holy Ghost, but Jesus sometimes asked that odd question to a sick person. Do you want to be well? Why? Because there is some people that somehow might think they want to be healed, but inside they, they feel comfortable. They like that sickness. They like the attention that it brings. They like the... Let me say something to you. I remember I was in, I was in Bulgaria, in Eastern Europe, and I was ministering. It was like a clinic, and we went there to minister to people. And, you know, to evangelize them. And there was a lady who had a little boy who was paralyzed. Couldn't walk. Never walked before. He was probably four years old. And his legs were all, you know, crippled. He could never walk before. And I ministered. And I could tell that little boy was even possessed or oppressed or whatever by a demon. Because I would try to touch him and he'd go like this and look at me like almost. <sighs> and then finally I asked the mother if she wanted to receive Jesus, which she did. And the moment she did, then I laid my hands on that little boy and something happened in that little boy. All of a sudden, it's like something snapped and that demon left. And all of a sudden, I, I, I took the little boy to pray for his healing. And I took him and I put him on the floor and I said, come and, and he started to walk. God healed him. But you know what happened? The mother got mad at me. Yes. She got mad. You know why? Because she was receiving money from the government because her child was crippled. And she told me, she said, now, because he walked, I'm going to lose all benefits. <laughs> so there are some people that they might tell you they want to be healed, but in their heart they don't. Because if they get healed, they lose benefits. They lose attention. They lose certain things. So you see... Us as Christian, as priest unto God, we've got to fight against that. And we want any time sickness is there, we've got to want to get it out. Get rid of it. Amen. That's true, isn't it? You might even know people like that. I thought that was strange that Jesus was asking people, Do you want to be healed? Do you want? Because he knew that, that some people didn't really deep down in their heart didn't want to. Hallelujah. So we are the temple of the Holy Ghost. I like that. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 and 20. 
He says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own. That temple belongs to God. You're just a steward. For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And how can we do that? How can we glorify God with this body? By keeping it free from sin, free from sickness, free from any kind of work of the devil. Hallelujah. Amen, amen. amen. Glory to God. You know, that's really what the message of holiness is about. The message of holiness is not that we're afraid that God is going to, you know, strike us dead. No, no, we understand we are a steward now. We are a priest. We are stewards. And God has trusted us with this temple to take care of it. And so I'm going to keep this temple holy. I'm going to keep it clean and I'm going to keep it uh, 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 healthy because I'm a steward and I want to glorify God. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Number 15. We're getting to the end of it, friends. God's will in heaven. God's will in heaven. So let's look at the will of God in heaven. You, you see, we went from creation, we went all the down Old Testament ministry of Jesus, then we looked in the epistle and the New Testament, you know, and then now we are in heaven. Revelation 21 verse 4. Let's find the will of God concerning healing or sickness in the book of Revelation. In chapter 21, we see a picture of heaven. I like Revelation 21 shows us what it's going to be like in heaven. And so in verse 4, it says, And God in heaven will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There shall be no more death, no sorrow, no crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. And you remember what we said? We said that, you know, poverty, sickness, all the works were a form of death. It was produced by spiritual death. Spiritual death produced sickness, poverty, hatred, everything else, which in turn would produce physical death. And it says here in heaven, there is no more death, no more, no more pain, no more cry. Amen. That's good news. That means then in heaven, there is no more sickness. That was a good time to say hallelujah. Amen. And so we see that at creation, there was no sickness at creation. God's perfect will was seen in creation and there was no sickness, no death. And then we see in heaven, here again we see God's perfect will in heaven. No more death, no sickness, no pain. And so if you ask anybody, what is the will of God? Would there be sickness in heaven? Most people will say, no, of course not. But then if you ask them, should there be sickness here on earth? You'll have all kind of answers. <laughs> Amen. You'll have all kind of answers. But here's the truth. God's will doesn't change. You see, he said, 
I am the Lord, Malachi 3.6. I do not change. Which means that his nature doesn't change. His character doesn't change. His will doesn't change. His mission didn't change. He's the same. That's what Jesus said. In Hebrew, he said, I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. His will remained the same. And that's why we spend so much time to go from Genesis all the way to Revelation. To show that the will of God didn't fluctuate, didn't change. The will of God, even though there was a time where there was the law, you know, and, and I wish I had, I had you. How many of you had me two years ago for prayer? Anybody had me for prayer? Or for righteousness. Well, you, you, oh, golly, I wish you heard my teaching about the true nature of God and why the purpose of the law, why God brought the law. And we see that through the law, God had brought some wrath. Sin had to be judged. But his heart and his purpose in doing that was not because he was a hard, a judge, mean and harsh and wanting to punish, but he had a purpose in it. And his purpose was good. And it was not to punish people. It, let me say it this way. It was not to help people walk straight and be righteous. The law was to bring people to Christ. To show them you cannot be righteous on your own. The law was called the ministry of death. The ministry of condemnation. With the law was the knowledge of sin. With the law came wrath to show people you cannot be righteous on your own. Because you see, the law, there was such a high standard, nobody could fulfill the law. Nobody could be righteous. And therefore, it, it brought people to, to a point where they said, I need mercy. I cannot be righteous on my own. I need mercy. And that's why God says now, here is Christ. It Guided Galatians chapter 3, verse 19 through 24 says, it, it, The law came to bring us to Christ. Amen. And so we see that all through the Bible, God's will remained the same. Even when God had to punish people under the law, every time people needed healing, God would bring healing, would make a way for people to get healed because that was his, his will. Amen. And so we see that all through the Bible, God's will was healing and for people to stay healthy. And you remember in Matthew chapter 6, verse 10 and 11. Matthew chapter 6, verse 10 and 11. When Jesus taught the disciples how to pray, he says, this is what you pray, our Father, which are in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your will be done, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Question, what is the will of God in heaven? We just saw it. Revelation 21.4. What is the will of God in heaven? No death, no sickness, no pain. And Jesus said when you pray, you have a right to ask that the will of the Father, which is in heaven, come down here on earth. And you notice he said, your kingdom come, your will be done. Did you notice in Luke 10 verse 9 and in Matthew chapter 9 verse 35, 
When people got healed, what did Jesus say? Today, the kingdom of God is come near you. You see, what was the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God came when people were getting healed. When people were getting free from demons. He says, today, the kingdom of come. Tell them the kingdom of come has come to your house. So when the kingdom comes, it means people are getting healed. People are getting delivered. And Jesus said, guys, when you pray, you can approach the Father and ask him that the kingdom come. Healing come to your house. That your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. No death, no pain. Do you see there? That is your right. Because the will of God in heaven, the will of God in heaven is no sickness. Therefore, now, and he says, you can pray and ask that his will, the same thing that is in heaven, come to earth so that the rule of the kingdom be be made and become to the earth. That is the, the message of the kingdom. The message of the kingdom is that what is in heaven could come here on earth, which is deliverance, healing, prosperity. Losing the devil, losing dominion. That is the message of the kingdom. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Now, does it mean that we always going to get there? Mean that everybody's going to get healed? Everybody's going to be delivered? No. But at least that must be our goal. You see, we must shoot for the stars, as we say. We must shoot for heaven and expect heaven to come here on earth. We must expect the dominion of heaven to be right here on 